The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Fifty years ago this week, Ireland became a member of what is now the European Union, then the EEC. We're going to be talking about it a little bit on the show over the next uh, few days. And in that regard, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the News Talk studios Eamon Gilmore, who, of course, is a former Labour Party leader, former Taunishta, and now EU Special Representative for Human Rights. Eamon, it's a pleasure and thanks a million for coming in to us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Karen. Um, if, my, if my maths and my research is right, you were only, I think, 16 uh, uh, when we officially joined uh, the EEC. Having said that, I'm sure you were a politically engaged 16-year-old. So can, can you maybe give us a sense of what the debates and the discussions were around this time 50 years ago? Well, I was doing my leaving cert in a, in a boarding school and we were only allowed newspapers on a Sunday. So <laughs> okay. was, we weren't the most informed people <laughs> at the time. Uh, but the, the debate at the time was about, you know, the loss of sovereignty, uh, the economic opportunities that there were from uh, uh, for, for joining. I think there was a lot of uh, uncertainty. It had been going on for quite a while since the early 1960s. And of course, it had been blocked for a period of time, mainly by uh, Charles de Gaulle, uh, because he, he wanted to block the, block the British, not so much the, the Irish, I think. And um, then eventually the referendum took place in, in 1972. Uh, it was passed uh, overwhelmingly. I think it has been um, an, an enormous success. Uh, if you think about it, in 1972, 1973, uh, we had about two thirds, Ireland, about two thirds the average income of the rest of the European community as it then was. Uh, today, it's about one and a quarter times the average. Um, if you look at the changes that have taken place since then, for women, for example, uh, that time women, I, I think the marriage ban had just been lifted, uh, but was lifted because we were about to join uh, the European community. But equal pay didn't come in for women until uh, the latter part of the 1970s. Uh, employment equality legislation, the same. If you look at environment legislation, a lot of it was driven by the, the European Union. Um, things that we had already started, I think, in Ireland, like the education revolution, mm. uh, the free second level education, university grants, and I was an early beneficiary of that myself. Um, uh, but the, the development of the regional technical colleges and the technological, what are now the technological universities, uh, they were supported by the European Union in the beginning through European Social Fund grants. A lot of the early students that went and indeed later uh, were supported in, in that way. And even if we look at the Northern Ireland peace process. Uh, a lot of credit goes to the United States, and rightly so, for the support that it gave uh, to the process down the years. Uh, less so, perhaps, to the European Union, even though it was the European Union that put up the money. Uh, mm. Very large sums in peace funding uh, for Northern. The most iconic uh, vision of that is probably the uh, the peace bridge in in Derry, which was built with European Union funding. And money is a very kind of tangible. Uh, and one of the most obvious tangible benefits of of our membership that there were intangible benefits as well uh, were there i mean ireland's place in the world and how we defined our place in the world that i assume changed did it oh yes uh, i mean prior to membership of the the european union i think it's fair to say that ireland defined itself continued to define itself by reference to britain former colony uh you know, 
biggest trading partner, nearest neighbour, of course, uh, and of course, uh, the the Northern Ireland uh, issue. I think that what European Union membership gave Ireland was a confirmation of its own independence um, and an opportunity to define itself as a modern European country. It grabbed the opportunities with, with both hands. I think if you look at, and you say the money, uh, there was a lot of transfer of European money, which built motorways, a lot of the infrastructure, but it was used very well by by successive uh, governments. And that, of course, contributed uh, to the economic success uh, of the country. I think it also enabled Ireland to look more outwards. Uh, and that is reflected, I think, in the, the change. It's not the only p- reason why we, we've changed socially from being mm. a very conservative country at the time that we joined to now one of the most liberal countries in the world. But the European experience and the European comparison, I think, contributed to that. And as you say, it has also provided an opportunity for Ireland to amplify its own voice uh, in the world, its own place in the world. I mean, the work, for example, that I do these days as a special representative for uh, for human rights and human rights has always been at the core of um, Ireland's foreign policy. You know, it, 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 is, it is much more powerful to talk on behalf of 27 countries yes. when you're outside of Europe than to talk on behalf of one. And, and listen, you're obviously a very committed European given you, you have that role at the moment uh, as a special representative. Has there been any time or were there times where you had misgivings about the relationship? Not necessarily that it existed, but, but um, I suppose maybe the, 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 the power dynamic in that relationship or maybe you had misgivings about the sovereignty question that people raised 50 years ago. Well, it's not perfect. Um, one of the things you have to, I think, appreciate about the European Union is that this has never been tried before. Uh, there's nowhere else in the world uh, that you have 27 independent sovereign countries coming together, pooling sovereignty, most of them uh, also pooling their, their currency, uh, having a single uh, single currency, a single e- economic uh, unit. So it doesn't always work perfectly. And uh, it's, it's still very much uh, a work in progress. I think there have been a couple of occasions. Um, uh, one I remember was, uh, and I think this was an Irish decision rather than a European decision. I remember uh, in 1992, the time of the Maastricht uh, mm. Treaty, when the then Irish government negotiated a protocol, uh, which meant that uh, that abortion services could not be introduced in Ireland uh, through the European uh, Union. And it was obviously in response to the anti-abortion lobby at the time. Now, Mm. that has passed. Uh, We're now in a a different era. Uh, People have decided that issue by by referendum. I think the other occasion that I might uh, remark on was during the financial crisis. I think in the early stages of the financial crisis, I think the approach that was taken mainly by Chancellor Merkel and President Sarkozy, um, which concentrated very much on, on Getting reducing budgets, um, I think was the wrong approach. Uh, we argued against it at at the time, uh, and in fact succeeded in in to a large extent in changing it. Uh, and that came about, I think, when uh, Sarkozy was replaced by President Hollande in France, who was much more open to hearing the views of the Irish government. And at that time, because he was a sister party, mm. the views of the Irish Labour Party in in what was needed to do to uh, develop jobs and grow the economy. The other criticism at the time was that that. Um, how that played out betrayed the reality. This is how some people described it: that you know, y- Europe really was a kind of a two-tier union. That it was it was France and Germany uh, dictating the terms of membership to others. 
Well, I think, well, I think, first of all, I think one of the factors that we have to build into that is the degree to which Ireland contributed to that crisis itself. And I would argue that uh, the worst decision that probably Doyle era never made was the decision to have a blanket uh, guarantee for the, the banks, which incidentally was supported by every political party in, in Leinster House on that occasion, except uh, except for the Labour Party. And that's, of course, what gave rise to the circumstances that we couldn't borrow in the market, uh, that the country was facing, uh, was becoming broke, was effectively broke at that stage uh, and had to uh, borrow money from the European Commission and the, the European uh, Central Bank. Uh, that was a very difficult, and I remember some very difficult discussions at that time with both the European Commission and with the, the, uh, the European European Central Bank. But I think that those tensions will, will always will always be there. I think that what you have to to look at are the achievements. Um, uh, one of the things I think that is unique about the European Union is that it has come out of every crisis stronger and it has come out of every crisis learning. If you look, for example, at what happened in the early days uh, of the COVID crisis, uh, you know, it, it wobbled a little in mm. getting the act together. It didn't have, the, the member states hadn't given the European Union competence in the health area, uh, but it came out of that much, much stronger and uh, dealt with the whole issue of, uh, of vaccinations and so on. If you look now at the response to Ukraine, uh, which has been very, very quick, very strong, certainly a lot stronger than uh, Putin thought it was uh, going to be and perhaps uh, thought it was going to be a bit like what happened after Crimea in 2014 and, and then found that the, the European Union these days is not the European Union that it was uh, seven years ago and acts more promptly and, and more, more strongly. So I think that each crisis uh, strengthens it. Uh, we're now in a situation where you have another nine European countries uh, who are interested in membership uh, mm. of the European Union. So it's a it's a growing project. Is it a project that it is possible to predict what it might look like in another seven years or 17 or 70? Well, I think it's fair to say that it's it's likely to be a larger union. Uh, uh, the, the, the countries in the in the Balkans um, want to become members now. Uh, recent uh, decision to uh, pro- progress the um, application by by Bosnia uh, Herzegovina. Um, the decision, for example, to give candidate status to Ukraine and to Moldova and to uh, work on candidate status for for Georgia, so it's likely to be to be larger. That in turn, I think, will pose certain challenges for it because uh, the larger it gets, the more complex the decision making process becomes. Mm. So I think there will have to be constitutional changes. I think the other big challenge uh, that it faces is in terms of where the world is these days. Because if you look at the countries in the European Union and you say, right, here are countries which are democratic, where you can express your opinion, go out in the streets and protest if that's what you uh, want, want to do. There are very few countries in the world now where that is possible. In fact, only 14 percent of the world's population uh, enjoy those freedoms. And we're living now in a world where... It is becoming increasingly authoritarian. And whereas we've seen uh, by, by Russia in Ukraine where authoritarian rulers will now use the force of arms to uh, impose their will uh, on their smaller neighbours. Uh, this is the kind of world that we're, we're living in, in now. And if you look at the various crises that we have in the world, whether it's Ukraine, 
Afghanistan, the shocking treatment of, of women and girls in that country, mm. the treatment of the protesters in Iran, uh, the civil war that has been going on in, in Ethiopia and the huge numbers of yeah. people who have been killed there. We're living in a world where it is increasingly challenging for the, the European Union to promote the values on which the European Union is based. And in your vision, should the European Union be promoting, protecting those values at home? Should that be the focus or promoting them abroad, it's, it's, actively promoting them abroad? It's, it's a bit of both. My, my work is, is actively promoting them abroad and, and that's what I do. I, I talk largely with, with governments about the human rights situation in their, in, in their countries. But that is only credible. Uh, provided we can we can keep it right at home, and uh, as you know, there have been some issues with some member states and cases before the uh, European Court of Justice about the the human rights and democracy standards uh, in some of the member mm. states. So I think we've got to watch that space and ensure that uh, what are the rules of the European Union, the, the uh, values on which it is based, are kept by every member state, and that's probably going to be. Uh, one of the the topics that we're probably going to be hearing a lot more. I I think in the years ahead, we're probably going to be hearing a lot more um, about the values of the European Union and the values on which it's it's based rather than the economic and political side that we've been hearing up to now. Eamon, it's been an absolute pleasure and thanks a million for coming into studio. Eamon Gilmore is, of course, former Labour Party leader, former Taunashta, EU Special Representative for Human Rights. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from 4 on News Talk.